and welcome to the RSCS podcast, bringing you insight and opinion on the built environment from around the world. I'm Kisa Zara, Senior Sustainability Analyst at RSCS. I'm joined by Katrina Brady, Director of Programme Strategy at the World Green Building Council. Today, we are discussing ESG with a particular focus on findings from the World Green Building Council's recent publication, the Social Impact Report, and the RSCS 2023 Sustainability Report. So just to kick things off, let's just frame what we mean when we're talking about ESG. What does it stand for and how can we relate to it? Sure, this is a great question because I think that ESG is one of these terms that increasingly people are using really colloquially, but people don't really understand what it means. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And we tend to use that as a standalone term rather than saying ESG reporting or something like that. But these pillars represent the three main non-financial topic areas that companies would report on, say, annually. We recognise today from the RICS report that we've just seen Uh, And I'm sure we know from the industries that we all work in that financial actors are having pressure placed on them by both their customers and their investors to become more sustainable. And so because of that, we're seeing that financial actors are looking now to seek these reporting frameworks so that they can show their investors, show their customers, show their clients that they are addressing these environmental, these social, these governance concerns, the ESG pillars And so because of that, there are now a fantastic range of ESG reporting frameworks, including those specifically for real estate, uh, that have proliferated across the market. And I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to this. There are obviously different levels of enforcement around the world. I'm sure with um, such international membership and listenership, people will be reflecting that, that it is a confusing space, that sustainability reporting is mandatory in some parts of the world, particularly here uh, in the UK and also in Europe, it's become really mainstream due to policies like the CSRD. And there's also countries like Malaysia that have been really forward thinking in ensuring that all PLCs have to report on their ESG, but uh, as well as having different frameworks available and different internal priorities, it's, it's just creating this world of ESG where there isn't a huge amount of alignment internationally, which I'm sure we all recognise as one of the big challenges that we face in the sustainability sector. And so this little bit of thought leadership that myself and the team at the World Green Building Council have put out to focus on the S of ESG hopefully will be a little bit of food for thought around that topic specifically. Is there a common understanding of the S in ESG? Does it mean different things to different people or regions? Uh, I'm going to say definitely no, because this is why we wrote this publication, that we recognised that there was not a common understanding of S and ESG. And we spent a lot of time last year doing research on this within our global network. There's around 80 national green building councils with the members and partners that we work with and recognised there was this huge variability in what organisations consider to be material concerns around people. And I think a lot of people might might be listening to this and perhaps haven't given it a great deal of thought because the sector obviously is so, so incredibly massive and so fragmented that I think we forget that overall the built environment sector, buildings and construction are incredibly critical for people's health and livelihoods and of course the environmental impact. And 
that's everything from the fact that the construction sector is responsible for employing 7% of the global workforce. And then, of course, it's the responsibility of this sector to create our, our homes and our communities and our cities, our built environment generally. And then, of course, when we think about this from an environmental perspective, I'm sure we're familiar with the statistic that this sector is responsible for just shy of 40% of energy-related carbon emissions. But then it's also the place in which we're experiencing these physical climate risks and stressors. So I think this intersection of ENS, I'm sure it's something we'll talk a wee bit more, but it's something that we we need to address and start to build up this common understanding of the S in the same way that the industry has done a great job in doing so around the E over the past few years. The social impact report was published in December 2023. Can you outline some of the key findings from it? Absolutely. And it's a real pleasure to be doing this because we launched this in person at COP28 in Dubai. So it's still a, a very fresh publication for us. But Really, this is this is thought leadership, I think. It's an outcome of learnings, of discussions and roundtables and insights that we've been putting together over the past year that we wanted to be able to, to take to Dubai for discussions. But really, the, the purpose of it is to present a new way of considering social impacts across the built environment. And to explain that a little more, I mean, we created a framework based on four scopes of social impacts that would be experienced across various locations and by various stakeholders in the building construction supply chain. So thinking from internal entity considerations through to occupier asset level considerations, across to community level impacts and issues, finally up to supply and wider value chain, which of course spans really the entire life cycle of the buildings and construction sector. And perhaps you'll you'll notice that I'm using the word scopes. And this is a term that I'm sure is going to be very, very familiar to many sustainability professionals through, of course, mirroring the language of the greenhouse gas protocol. And despite maybe being a little bit controversial, this is something that we've definitely done on purpose to try and make sure that people recognise in, in the same way that we should be considering and reporting on our scope one, two, three carbon emissions, we can use that same model to inform this more complete understanding of the responsibility that we have around the social side of the sector as well. So I can give you a few examples of um, of what those mean to bring that to life a little bit, but I'd definitely encourage people to have a, a little look at the paper. When, when I'm talking about these four scopes, we've actually started with a scope zero, and that would include entity and internal practices. So we would say that a scope zero uh, issue or consideration for an organization is one that they would be thinking of in terms of their internal practices. So things like ethical leadership, their employees' health and well-being, corporate governance, stakeholder engagement, that kind of thing. Obviously, that's only something for commercial organizations to consider. But then once you're looking at buildings of all typologies, scope one would be applicable to all. And that would be your building users in sight with examples, including things like housing attainability and affordability, indoor environmental quality, climate change impacts and resilience measures, all those kind of asset level focus points. Scope two would then be community level considerations. So things like accessibility over to just transition or community empowerment, social cohesion. And then scope three, and this I think scope three is the area that I'm most excited about as really normalizing are these supply and value chain considerations. And that's everything from construction and material, workers' health and well-being, physical and mental health, 
the sustainable construction responsibilities that we have, the environmental risks of working in this sector, labour rights more generally, which brings in things like forced labour and um, also auditing and transparency issues. Uh, and then the final thing to bring in is just that there are obviously issues that don't fall so nicely into one of these four buckets. And so we we also try and pull together an element which we're calling all scopes. So there are social impact issues that are our responsibility to consider at every stage of the supply chain. And that might be things like diversity and inclusion or health and well-being or, of course, climate change impacts, resilience that are not just going to be felt in one specific part or stage of the life cycle. So that's why we are encouraging people to recognise that actually every single actor in the building construction life cycle has a responsibility to consider things like resilience and adaptation to climate change, whether you are the person who is creating the materials or whether you're constructing the building or whether you're part of a community who needs to equip itself for climate risks that are coming in the future. And that is essentially the crux of what we've been trying to produce. I definitely encourage people to look at the graphics, but this premise of looking at social impacts much more holistically is really what we're trying to encourage with this piece of work. Was there anything in the findings that was unexpected or very surprising for you? Not unexpected or surprising because of the fact that we consulted so thoroughly internally, but a lot of these conversations were being had with our with our network and partners and trusted other NGOs. But when we convened real experts on this topic, it was incredibly clear that when we were looking to see what different organizational priorities and different strategies all of these different actors had around the S and ESG, people's priorities were incredibly varied, incredibly divergent. So I think perhaps the only thing that was surprising was really how little coalescence there already is around the S and ESG. And I'm sure we're certainly not the first and certainly won't be the last to put forward a a framework or thought leadership like this. But I do think that the more we can be talking more openly about this, particularly to bodies like yourself with such an influential voice in the sector, it's going to really help us to recognise that this is the area of sustainability that we don't have this unified understanding of. And it, it would be fantastic if we can get base level understanding around the S and ESG to where we are in E so that we can have equal and balanced conversations about how we look at both hand in hand. The, the World Green Building Council's report delves into the social dimensions of the built environment. What kind of projects do you think showcase a successful integration of social considerations into sustainable building practices? Great question. And Actually, in this paper, we reached out through the network to find a few different examples. The two that come to mind immediately are two literally from different different sides of the planet, different climates, different everything, but uh, different scales as well. But uh, we profile uh, one residential development from Bergen City in Norway, which um, is is publicly declaring to be a human rights city because it's home to a growing refugee and migrant population. And they've been implementing through the development of this project, the Dignity in the Built Environment Framework that our friends at the IHRB have created. And it's really fascinating to see the intersection of public-private different actors in the supply chain in, in enforcing that collaboration that's really been needed to ensure that these particularly vulnerable populations are being considered 
at all design and construction phases of this project. Uh, and then a couple of other really interesting ones that come to mind are across Australia and New Zealand, uh, where there are a few projects of different typologies that have been developed not only in collaboration with both First Nations and non-First Nations people, but actually they've been developed for these people to be using together, to be providing shared space and activities and opportunities. And I think the message that comes out so strongly from these kind of case studies, and I'm going to credit our friends at the Green Building Council of Australia for this phrase because I really love it, but their phrase is about listening and unlearning, which I, I just love as a phrase, that that we need to ensure that particularly where we are dealing with vulnerable populations, where we're considering a just transition, but really for, for all of our for all of our built environment projects, we must ensure that this process of collaboration is really robust and that we are including end users, local communities, workers, with that emphasis on the most vulnerable so that we can shift this inequality and the power imbalances with how decisions are traditionally being made in the design process. What emerging trends or innovations does the industry need to embrace in order to effectively action the S in ESG? So I think industry needs to be considering the S in the same way as the E. And that's really actually why we've tried to make it as easy as possible for the sector to start doing so by mirroring this language with this framework of scopes and to some extent creating a bit of a link between direct and indirect emissions and impacts in the same way we would look at uh, direct and indirect emissions. We're sort of saying you can do the same with impacts within the, the social impact framework that we presented at the end of last year. In terms of an innovation, it's not so much a, a revolutionary new idea or something new and shiny and technical and amazing, but the call that we're making is that this broader consideration needs to be normalised from planning and consultation phase, as we learned about in these case studies, all the way through to operational and ideally being something that organisations are reporting on, ongoing in their in their annual corporate reports and the like. And I mean, my my personal dream for this, and I'll just feel like my life is complete if this happens, but if I ever hear somebody say that they, uh, on behalf of their company, they're reporting on their scope three carbon emissions and they're working to net zero embodied carbon, and they're also looking at their scope three social impacts. And so they're ensuring that they are doing no significant harm or they're actively enhancing social equity at all stages of the life cycle in the same breath, in the same sentence, that's exactly the the innovation, the trend, the the revolution that we want to see. And I mean, I really will emphasize that this framework is just a seed for thought leadership. It's a short piece of work, but we see this as something that we hope organizations will, will pick up and they'll take further. It's something that can be used as a basis for ESG assessments, for organizational frameworks, for tools. And really, that's why we're putting it out there. So I hope that people get as excited about this thinking as I clearly am about it. And that these are the kind of sentences that we'll hear people saying in the future. You've already touched on this, but there's been a big focus on the E so far. So has this been a detriment to the development of the S and the G? I'm not sure if detriment is necessarily what we would say, because I think that there is a recognition amongst all of us that the the environmental priorities are in many ways the most urgent, they're the most time sensitive and the the environmental elements, particularly around climate risks and the increasing risk that we face with climate change is 
is incredibly urgent. So in one way, it's fantastic that the E has picked up so much industry attention and engagement and reporting. But I think the point that we want to make is that actually, particularly with ENS, really these themes are complementary and splitting them out is a little bit arbitrary. There's no one without the other. Climate change is affecting people and nature, but it's already affecting 85% of the global population. And I think we often forget, particularly when we get together as, as climate people and we get together in in events like COP or these various conferences that I'm sure we all go to, that we f- I think we forget that we're not tackling emissions purely for altruistic reasons. The reason that we're doing so is because of the risk of, of climate change affecting all of us and our children and our grandchildren and our assets and our livelihoods. So it's absolutely not looking to drop the E or the G in any way, but to unite that narrative between environmental and social and I think that's something that we need to be calling for across all industries, but I think it's so important for a sector like the built environment, where the responsibility for tackling our environmental priorities is so substantial because of the huge material use, because of the huge emissions use, the impact on nature, we could go on. But the fundamental purpose of buildings and construction is really all about the S. We have buildings for people, so what on earth is the point of having buildings that don't serve people? How can the built environment actively address and prioritise social considerations? Uh, what would be sort of the, the key aspects or projects or things that we need to focus on? Yeah, this is a great question because I appreciate that I'm talking about these super high level things and it's, it's, it's not easy for organisations to consider, oh my goodness, where am I going to go? I want to be talking about my scope three social emissions. What a great sentence. But how am I going to start doing that? And we've proposed a framework that we're calling the five A's to guide organisations to do this. The first action that we are asking organisations to do is to increase their awareness. And I think that as the SNESG has all of these issues, everything from indoor environmental quality through to human rights and the supply chain, I think as these are raising across the industry, it's going to be increasingly unacceptable for organisations to not be aware of the social impact issues that are in their supply chain, particularly in the manufacturing sector. So the first stage, we think, for organisations is for them to raise awareness within their organisations and across the industry of their own impact, of their significance within the built environment and the type of social and environmental issues that they are impacting. The second piece would be assessment. And that's where we want to see organisations undertaking really an audit of current practices, policies, outcomes, so that they can identify their impacts in a more quantified way. And that takes us into our third day, which is accountability, taking responsibility, taking ownership, ideally reporting on that externally, because this is such a huge sector, probably no organisation is going to be facing entirely unique issues. So with accountability, we'd love to see that in terms of transparency as well. Then the fourth A is around action. We want to be seeing organisations taking this learning, this audit, this assessment into tangible efforts and practical steps. We know it's not going to be easy, particularly where the sector is incredibly fragmented and we see layers of organisations and contractors and subcontractors going down all the way back to the very beginning of the supply chain. But it's really where a lot of these human rights infringements are most being felt right at the beginning of the the material extraction and the material creation and manufacturing process. So we really need to ensure that this assessment and action is going all the way through 
both, both sides of the building construction life cycle. And then our final A would be about advocacy. And that's, that's where we want to see organizations telling their story, using success stories to ensure that the long-term sustainability of these impacts and ideally advocacy to our decision makers, to our policy makers, so that we can start to see regulatory change around some of these really critical social issues that are being faced within this sector. The RSDS 2023 Sustainability Report pointed to some quite encouraging signs within the sector, particularly in the context of a growing demand for green buildings. But at the same time, it suggested that high initial cost of investment and a lack of common standards of green buildings are sort of impeding progress at the moment. So how can findings from the Social Impact Report and the RSCS Sustainability Report inform actionable strategies within the built environment? I think one of the things that I took away from the RICS sustainability report was that, or one of the most powerful things I took away was the regional insights in the RICS sustainability report. Because I think that we have to remember that these frameworks that we talk about, these strategies that we're advocating for need to be contextualized to their location. And for example, where the report pointed to the fact that water in Middle East and Africa is a is a particular crisis, is a particular incentive for green buildings. That is that's a way of us engaging the sector around the opportunity, the value proposition, the business case for sustainable buildings and construction in a way that's going to speak to local stakeholders in a language that's really engaging for them. And actually, we published a thought leadership piece around water last December as well. So we can point people to that if that's a resource people want to have a little look at. But speaking more on the value proposition piece, uh, as as we saw in the Americas, for example, I think it was saying that demonstrating the business case is going to be critical because 40% of the investors surveyed in the Americas were saying that that's a substantial barrier for them in terms of developing sustainable assets or green buildings. So I think part of part of our persuasion narrative has to be being aware of the fact that we have to speak a slightly different language, even though we're calling for the same thing all over the world. We're calling for better buildings for people and planet. And yes, maybe our strategies look slightly different. And some people are talking about people and planet and some people are talking about emissions and equity and resources. But let's use the insights from the RICS sustainability report and other data that organizations like ours collect, but also the data from your members and from the rest of the industry who can report and be transparent and and give these insights so that we can then be equipped as a sector to use narratives intelligently so that we can build that value proposition so that hopefully in a few years' time, the statistics in the report will be 80, 90, 100% investors engaging in green buildings. Speaking of stakeholders, how can different stakeholders from architects to developers, how can they play a pivotal role in driving positive change through their projects? What would be your top three takeaways from them? So I think for all stakeholders, we really want to develop a recognition that every stakeholder has a role to play and kind of that nobody can sit back. We can't, 
we can't be in a place anymore where people can point fingers and be like, oh, that's not my fault. Oh, that's the designer's fault. That's the manufacturer's fault. That's construction's fault. We need to be in a place with both the E and the S where every stakeholder recognizes their own individual role in working towards a sector where we can overcome these huge social impact and equity challenges, as well as contributing towards a circular economy, a net zero future, a regeneration of nature. So I think the first takeaway would be that we want to move towards a norm where ignorance really isn't an excuse. And at the very least, we expect organizations to be aware of the full impact of their role in the value chain, even if it's incredibly difficult to do anything else, because we realize that, but be part of the conversation, be aware of the impact. And then once you've started with awareness, you can then go on to assessment, audit, all of these steps I was just talking about. So I think the second piece is around transparency, around reporting, which brings us back really to where we first started with ESG. But we need to be compiling data for the sector on both the S and the E. So we need to be seeing organizations sharing their best practice, sharing lessons learned, even sharing things that didn't work, worst practice. And that's why we have resources like the World Green Building Council Case Study Library and so many others, so that we can help the sector to compile the narrative of things that have worked, ways they've overcome barriers, maybe not worst practice, I'm not sure that's that helpful, but something in between. But I think really the the point I'd like to leave people with is that even though this potentially might be greeted with a groan and a sigh from many people listening to this, that, oh my goodness, I've only just grappled the E and now they're telling me I have to look at the S as well, but we can't turn a blind eye to our responsibility to both people and planet and that this really is the sole purpose of our built environment. Our built environment exists to provide shelter, to provide comfort, to provide safety. And it's it's unacceptable now that this industry does this in a way that's detrimental to millions of people. And so it is our responsibility to not only enhance equity, enhance health, enhance resilience, but also to do this in a way that's meeting our environmental objectives as well. It seems like there's a lot to do for stakeholders. But hopefully it won't be so complicated and we can get there in the end. Yeah, that was a long answer, but it's an easy list. <laughs> Thank you so much, Katrina, for, for your time and for, for your incredible summary of the report and for your ideas on how we can improve the S in ESG. Thank you for listening to the RSES podcast. How should we develop this conversation further? Let us know your thoughts on social media or directly via the form on the rscs.org podcast page. Follow us on your podcast app or check out our page on rscs.org to stay up to date with all the latest episodes from RSCS.